I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, lighthearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show, I am delighted to welcome Amber Itzo. Amber Itzo is a self-confessed avid tea drinker, wine enthusiast and lover of the TV show Friends. She is also a fellow member of the infertility community after finding out that her tubes were blocked, which, despite best efforts, ultimately ended up in her having to have both fallopian tubes removed. Crucially, Amber led the Fight for IVF campaign, which resulted in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough CCG reinstating NHS-funded IVF in 2021. Amber is co-host of her own awesome podcast, Am I Overreacting? And following her last round of IVF, she is mum to her beautiful boy, Joey. Amber, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for a nice intro. You're very welcome. Amber, you and I first, I say met, I don't think we've ever actually met in real life, but communicated, if you like, when I volunteered to help run one of your support groups a couple of years ago. I think, were we in the thick of COVID, maybe? Mm, Yeah, it was around then, yeah. I remember kind of the first meeting we had and you were very professional and the real thing that came across was your passion for supporting women on their fertility journey and you were still in the midst of your own journey at that point as well Mm. and I very clearly remember asking you about your work and just getting a feel for what you were doing and and I just kind of said you know what is it you're providing support with and you just very simply said everything yeah And that was it. That was your answer. And at that point, genuinely, in my heart of hearts, I just thought, wow, okay, this is a very impressive woman. Would you mind starting us off by telling us your own story and how you've ended up where you are today? I, unfortunately, uh, like you say, ended up finding out that we needed IVF to get pregnant and I was completely and utterly infertile. It was physically impossible for me to get pregnant without IVF. But I'm 28 now and I was only 20 when I first actually came off the pill. So it wasn't necessarily a let's start trying. It was more, I hated pill. I'd been on it for years. I'd come off it and was just being a bit irresponsible, if you like. Mm. I'm sure my dad was very proud at that point. (laughs) But after, after a certain amount of time, kind of, you know, things just weren't happening. And it was one of those where even though we weren't trying and I hadn't really given it a second thought, after about a year or so, I was a bit like, okay, why have we not had any kind of accident here Mm. or even any scares or anything like that? It was very, very strange. So after that, I kind of started to get a little bit a little bit intrigued and a little bit obsessed by it, if you like. My timeline is kind of a bit messed up here. I think the, the first kind of three years are a bit of a blur now. But a few months after that, I'd actually had a false positive pregnancy test. So wow. my cycle was all over the place. Always has been. Uh, I have PCOS. So it, it is just, you know, it comes when it wants. On this occasion, it seemed to be even longer than usual. Symptoms were a bit here, there and everywhere. So I decided to do a test. I did two tests, um, digital ones, and they both came up saying pregnant. So obviously at that point, you've had two positive pregnancy tests. You think, okay, I'm pregnant. Uh, And I remember going to work and just feeling sick to my stomach. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to do now. Like, when do I tell Marco? So I came home from work, told Marco. He was obviously over the moon. Got in at the doctor's and they were like, no, you're you're not pregnant. They do obviously the urine test and all the rest of it. And there was no trace of, of anything. 
So it was unlikely that I'd had a chemical because there was no trace of anything whatsoever. They determined it was a false positive, which, you know, is feasible. They both came out of the same box. It was obviously a dodgy batch or whatever. But after that, I became a little bit obsessed uh, mm. with with the whole process. My PCOS was confirmed a few months after that. I kind of knew I had it. My mum has PCOS, so I kind of knew what the symptoms were, and it was quite clear that I had it. So it didn't really come as a shock. But because I was so young, and this was the part that I think was the most frustrating part of the entire journey, really, it took me nearly three and a half years to actually get referred at all. Wow. Because I was so young, my doctors just kept fobbing me off. Mm. And I just kept being told it'll happen. You know, if you lose weight, bear in mind at this point, I was like a size eight. I survived on coffee and cigarettes at this point. <laughs> I was at university. It was kind of very much my, you know, my lifestyle was not ideal at all. <laughs> so at this point, I was like the thinnest I'd ever been. But I was being told if I lost weight, if I just exercised more, if I stopped smoking, all these different things, it would happen. And obviously it never happened. And they were just refusing to kind of refer me for any further investigations. And then three and a half years in, I actually saw a different doctor. And again, I think one thing that was quite crucial at this point was that she was female. Mm. And as soon as I told her my symptoms and the fact that we'd been uh, having unprotected sex for so long, she immediately kind of said, yeah, this isn't right. We need to get you referred. Mm. Uh, and there and then she did the referral and sent it over. And six weeks later, I was seeing the fertility nurse. Oh my! They thought I had endometriosis. So I was referred for a laparoscopy mm. quite quickly. Usually, I think you have to go through a series of other tests before getting to the laparoscopy stage. We'd had a lot of blood tests and scans at this point. So they referred me straight for the laparoscopy, expecting it to be a case of endometriosis, mm. when actually it turned out that my tubes were completely blocked. Oh. They didn't know why it wasn't endometriosis. They couldn't really give me a reason why. They didn't know if that was why I was getting so much pain every month with my cycle. Mm. So we agreed to kind of have them removed. It was also because a lot of the time they'll only kind of suggest you have them removed if there's fluid in your tubes. I chose to have that done because I, A, we didn't know whether or not it was contributing to any of the pain, but B, I just wasn't coping with my diagnosis at yeah. all. Yeah. For me, it was just easier because I think that feeling every month of, okay, is it going to happen? Am I going to be one of these people where a miracle occurs yeah. so for me it was just easier to get rid of them to help me deal with it and it did yeah. shortly after that we then started IVF we did have two fresh cycles unfortunately both of those were absolutely disastrous oh. neither of those uh, were very good at mm. all one we didn't even get to transfer oh. the second one we had one incredibly poor quality embryo uh, that wasn't quite where it should have been on day five but we transferred anyway yeah. so that's when we went into lockdown and at that point obviously we'd had the two two failed cycles and we were kind of forced really into having a bit of a break mm -hmm. a because we completely ran out of money because mm -hmm. unfortunately where I lived well where I live at the time it wasn't available on the NHS all of this was having to be done privately we were forced into a bit of a break but I think it came at a very good time I think I, I needed that break I don't think I could have gone into a third cycle there and then yeah and to be totally frank, I don't think it would have worked if we did anyway, because I think the tests that we did over the next 18 months really determined everything for mm. us. But that's when I started the campaign. So I started the Fight for IVF campaign during Fertility Week in 2020. Mm -hmm. And it, it's always really baffled me that IVF is such a postcode lottery mm -hmm. when it comes to the NHS in the UK. And where I live, so I live in Cambridgeshire, and we were one of three locations in the UK where IVF wasn't funded on the NHS at all. Wow. But where you live, it varies from no cycles to one to two to three. But the NICE guidelines are three full cycles of IVF. Mm -hmm. So I started that campaign, not really thinking it would get anywhere, if I was honest. 
I was really passionate about it. But mm. at the end of the day, I'm just a tiny, tiny fish in a very big pond. And <laughs> I really didn't expect anything to kind of come from it. So while I was doing that, I also set up a company, if you like, offering these free support groups, which mm-hmm. is obviously where, where we met yep. by the end of it. I think I had 10 groups running. I think I had one for, there was like endometriosis, there was donor conception, there was PCOS, general infertility. There were, there were quite a few different groups that were running. So all of this was going on at the same time. And then by some miracle, July 2021, the campaign actually succeeded in reinstating IVF in Cambridgeshire, which was just amazing. It's incredible. Absolutely amazing. I'll never, ever, I still don't think it's sunk in that I did that. You did that, yeah. When people talk to me about it, I'm kind of quite nonchalant about it. (laughs) I kind of feel like, oh, maybe it would have happened anyway. It's very odd and a very weird feeling, but it's amazing. And I think, you know, at this point, we'd had all these tests done, which had diagnosed a few further issues with us and had further treatment along the way. And we were ready to pack our bags and go to Greece for our third cycle. And by some absolute miracle, we qualified on the NHS. Yay. We started New Year's Day 2022. And yeah, by some miracle, it was successful. And yeah, I gave birth to my little boy in October. Oh my goodness. Quite a long journey. (laughs) I've intentionally not interrupted you because it is just this incredible story. And going in for an endometriosis, you know, suspected endometriosis is going to be bad enough. That would be something that you'd be worried about with the pain. To then find out about your fallopian tubes, that must have just Mm. been such a massive bolt out the blue. Did you have any suspicions at all? It didn't even cross my mind that it could be a thing. I think the whole way through, I had been so naive, I think is the best word. And because I was young, when I first came off the pill and I was still at uni, there was part of me that was like, oh, it's just not meant to happen yet. It's just not meant to happen while I'm at uni. And then after that, it was, okay, maybe it's just not meant to happen until I get married. And then once we got married, it was that's when I started thinking, okay, what are we waiting for now? And I I kind of kept convincing myself that there was a reason it hadn't happened and that it was meant to happen a certain way. And so when I had that operation, I was, I mean, I'm still not wholly convinced that I don't have endometriosis, if I'm honest, but that's a completely different story for a different day. But I absolutely did not expect to be told that my tubes were blocked. And I think that is something that really just floored me the worst thing was I was completely on my own and I'd just come around from general anesthetic to be told that that when I then inevitably rang my husband and asked him to come pick me up and told him we got home and he was asking me all these questions that's I I don't know like I was high as a kite when they told me so I've got I have no idea what any of this means we thought that the treatment plan would be that we'd see the fertility nurse I'd go on Clomid or something that would help me ovulate because my PCOS and that'd be it a happy days, let's have a baby. And yeah. it was it was never going to happen like that. If you're vaguely in this community, you hear about PCOS and you hear about endometriosis, but you don't actually hear that much about fallopian tubes. Yeah. I imagine that was a massive shock. We've talked in the past about people having to self-advocate and the acronyms and just the, the pure level of knowledge that happens within the fertility journey. What were some of the things that you found hardest? Oh God. Um, <laughs> Where to start? I completely second what you said. You know, 90% of the stuff I know about infertility and IVF is from my own research and talking to other people. And I would end up in rabbit holes just researching so much. Oh, God. I think uh, to pinpoint one particular thing, I think is really difficult because mm. for me, I think the waiting and the unknown was impossible. I hated not knowing whether or not it was ever going to work. And yep. I think that's what made it so hard because you're throwing quite literally everything you have, both your money, your time, your energy, everything you have into this. And it is like walking into Vegas, putting everything you have on a table <laughs> yeah, and is. going black or red. It's such a gamble. And I think for me, it was just, is this going to be a waste of time? Am I going to 
walk away from this and have nothing to show for it except being quite literally battered and bruised in every sense as well as being absolutely skinned I found that really really difficult to deal with and I think for me personally I had to try and build a life outside of IVF that I loved so that if it didn't work Mm. I knew I was going to be okay you know other than that I think the hardest part for me was the fact that I knew that did I live 10 minutes away I'd have got the the first cycle funded. And I think it's tricky because, you know, I know that for a lot of people, their only option is the NHS cycle and they can't afford to then go on and do a private cycle. Now, looking back, I see that first cycle as a bit of a dummy round. Nobody knows how you're going to respond. It is impossible for them to tell you that. I think that first cycle is vital in getting the right protocol. You know, unfortunately, the first cycle only works something like 18% of the time. So for me, it was so tricky knowing that despite the fact I was absolutely infertile, I was medically infertile. It was a medical condition that was stopping me from getting pregnant. I couldn't get any help with that whatsoever. And I was just left to fend for myself. The system is so fucked when it comes to that. And I think it just, it used to drive me up the wall. When you have to fund it yourself, there is an end of the road at some point and you you have to keep having these conversations of, okay, how much money can we actually put towards this? And I think at one point I was working three jobs, my husband was working two just to fund this. The financial strain was was absolutely huge and it's, it is quite a burden. You know, we're very British and people don't talk about money in Britain, but I actually think it's really important that you, that you talk about it. Maria, I tell everybody everything. Yeah, good. Yeah, I know. I've been listening to your podcast and I love it. But I love that you share because a lot of people don't talk about money mm. and it's absolutely devastating. You know, when I speak to people or you speak to people and they have only got one chance. Mm. And like you said, that first run with IVF, trying all these meds, you've got fresh, you've got frozen, mm. you've got all of this going on. And it does make sense in some ways that the success rate of that first one is is relatively low. Mm. You know, fingers crossed for anybody listening that's going through that first round, because it does happen sometimes. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I do know people actually where it has happened and they've had twins. <laughs> so fingers crossed for anyone in that situation. But you're right. And actually that ties me into the next question what key advice would you give to someone who's just starting out on their fertility journey? Because a lot of my listeners, and I'm sure you have similar, they're just at the beginning of their journey. And I sometimes forget because I've been in this world for so long. What advice would you give to someone just starting out? For me, I think if you are starting out, I do think research is key. From somebody who is an obsessive researcher, I think it's kind of important not to be. I am my own worst yeah. enemy and that I will I will research things to the death and I'll end up scaring myself yeah. silly. Um, so I think sometimes it is best to kind of trust what they're saying, but ask questions. I think if you don't understand it, it's important to ask. But at the end of the day, it's your body that's going through all this. So there's no harm in saying to them, why have you chosen this protocol for me? Is this a protocol that you do for everybody that walks through this door? Or have you done this based on our diagnosis because you think this is what is going to work for me? Not everybody will agree with this. Some people like to keep really busy and therefore stay at work. For me personally, it was important that I took that time off work. I knew that I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do my job. People really talk about self-care now, and I think it can become a little bit of a cliche, but I think with this, it is just so important to do something that is going to take your mind off it as much as you can in ways that aren't going to stress you out. You're individualizing everything. So you're saying treatment should be individual to you because you're right. You're not the same as the couple that have just walked in the door. Exactly. And I think it's really important to ask that question because when it comes to fertility, it absolutely is not a Mm. one size fits all. It is the opposite. Just on that note, our first clinic was very much everybody's in a box and it was very one size fits all. And I think for me personally, 
I find that that is one really key way to differentiate between a clinic that are doing it for the profits and a clinic who just want your money and a clinic who actually care about you and actually give a shit what they're doing and they want you to have a baby rather than you just being another number to them. Something to ask yourself as to whether or not you are happy with that and whether or not you feel you are being treated like a number or being treated as a patient, as an individual. And I think that is really, really key. Do you know, I just actually got goosebumps when you said that. It's so, so important. I love your way of distinguishing the clinics there as well, because there's so much confusion around clinics. Where do I go? Do I go to Greece? Do I go abroad? Do I go around the corner? Do I qualify? I think that's a really nice way for people just to even begin to think about what type of clinic is this? Yeah. For sure. Our first clinic, I don't name them and all the rest of it, but I do think our first clinic definitely did see it that way. There's tests that they told us that we didn't need and that would be a waste of time that actually when we had done after the event, when we decided that actually we do need to look at going to a different clinic, turned out to be a massive problem that was hindering our success. Oh my God. My other thing with clinics is not to look at the success rates. I know that to some people it is important. I don't really see how they can be compared. If you have two different clinics, you have clinic A and you have clinic B and 10 people walk through the door of clinic A and 10 people walk through the door of clinic B. The people at clinic A could have it fertility issues with the male with the female needing donor eggs and all the rest of it but needing three or four rounds to even find that out Mm. whereas the 10 people walking into clinic b could have blocked fallopian tubes and nothing else and ivs bypasses those and therefore on paper it's a bit more of a straightforward cycle so i think it's really really difficult to compare clinics based on those rates and so for me i think you need to go off the way they make you feel whether or not you feel like a patient or a number um and whether or not they specialize in the issues that you have. As you can tell, I get a bit pent up about this. (laughs) I love that you're talking about clinics because we've had some fantastic guests on the show, which is amazing, but we haven't actually talked about clinics that much. This is so helpful for people. I followed you for a long time and I do remember you talking about mental health a lot. And you mentioned a little bit earlier on, you were really struggling to accept your diagnosis. Where did you find support? Did you find support? How did you get through it? After I had my initial diagnosis, it was definitely, I would say, the darkest time in my life. I had always wanted to be a mum. I knew that that is exactly what what I wanted out of life. I wanted a massive family. I'd always said to my husband, I want six kids. And he had a heart attack every time I said it. So being told that ultimately that dream was completely ripped from under me and I kind of convinced myself immediately that it was never going to happen for me. I really, really struggled with that. Within about two weeks of getting my diagnosis, I was researching clinics. I'd picked a clinic. I was looking at egg sharing uh, to try and get the cost down. And I just threw myself into it. And then actually, it kind of started to sink in. And I kind of started to realize how serious it was, if you like. And I think a real turning point for me, was I rang my dad. He doesn't do emotion. You know, we don't, we don't talk about emotion. What happens, happens. And we bury our heads under the sand and we crack on. He's very stiff upper lip British. And the day I was diagnosed and I rang him, he cried. And I think for me, that was a really big, oh, wow, it's upset dads. This must be a real thing. As time went on, I just really, really struggled to deal with that. And I felt like I was grieving. I know it, it is a kind of grief. And yeah. I think you're grieving for the life that you've built in your head. And you are grieving the child that you are possibly never going to have. You're mm. grieving that entire life that you'd kind of built for yourself. At that point, I remember sitting down with my husband and him asking me outright if I was suicidal. And that for me was kind of a real, real turning point because it terrified me that he'd asked me that question. And it also terrified me that actually the answer was, you know, I said no to him, but the an- mm. the answer was yes. And I wow. think at that point it was, okay, I, I really need to kind of pull myself out of this. And, and what do I do? And so at that point, I'd asked my fertility nurse to refer me to have some counselling they had a specialist fertility counsellor that I had access to. And despite the fact that we didn't have access to IVF on the NHS, I did have access to her. 
Unfortunately, there was a 13-month waiting list for her. Over the next few months, it was self-work and it was very much things that I had to do for myself. And I think talking about it, first of all, was a massive turning point. And this was, it was around this point that I kind of started my blog. I started to talk about it really openly. I started to connect with people online who were going through similar things. And, and so we would talk about it in great depth. I not only felt like I was kind of getting out what I needed to say without actually saying it to somebody physical. I think yeah. that was a really big, a really big thing. It was a lot easier to kind of type things out and, I've always enjoyed writing and so it was a really easy way for me to kind of get it out and that kind of opened up the conversation because people would then start talking to me about it and it wasn't this taboo thing that I didn't know how to deal with. So I had started to kind of pick myself up and then later I did manage to get in with this counsellor and we did have, I had EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitisation or something like that it's called. Mm -hmm. It was a game changer and I will always be so, so grateful to her for helping me through that. But it was a really dark time, a really dark, really scary time. I know that you share with everybody, but I do appreciate you going through it again because, you know, that's about as low as you can get. Oh, for sure. How did you manage your relationship through this whole process? Well, when I got my initial diagnosis, it was September 2018 and we'd only been married since April. Wow. We were thrown in the deep end pretty much immediately. And I remember over those few months where I genuinely didn't think we were going to make it to a year. Wow. I just wasn't coping. He did everything he could to try and help me Mm. and he just couldn't. I would tell him to leave me all the time. I would tell him to, I always remember clear as day saying to me, look, it's you that I want and whether we have kids or not, me and you is enough. Uh, That grounded me a little bit. In the grand scheme of things, I think after maybe the first six months or so really did make us stronger. And I think we kind of became so much more of a unit and a team. And I think that was really important. The way we always saw it is if we can get through this, we can get through anything. Oh, I love that distinction between a team and a couple. That's really lovely. We've talked before about how fertility and going through the fertility journey, it just brings a whole different type of intimacy. Oh yeah, for sure. The emotional intimacy that comes with it is just insane. Like you have to talk. It's just on a whole other level, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I really, really do. Going into these rooms and having scans and you're, you know, you're showing sappy legs in the air and it's, it's mad. Your bits. Yeah, they're everywhere. Just before we get into the last little thing that I'm going to ask you today, I want to know, did you do the thing where you go to the doctor for your visit to Wanda and you know that your bits are going to be out, but you still like to hide your knickers anyway? Oh, all the time. Everybody does this. All the time. In my shoes, usually. In your shoes. Yeah, in my shoes. Although I made a really rookie error. Here's a story for you. So on one occasion, I went for a baseline scan. I wore a jumpsuit. Oh, no. Oh, which wasn't the best idea. So that was fun. Um, But yeah, there's a top tip. Always wear a skirt. Yes. A nice long skirt. Because then all you have to do is hitch it up. Hitch it up and flick your knickers off and you're good to go. I made more of an effort for that clinician than I did anybody else. I used to shave within an inch of my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Again, one of the things you've talked really openly about is this idea around body image, what your body can do, your relationship with your body, the size of your body, fitness exercise. I just wanted to ask you, honestly, you know, where are you at now? Oh, God. If I'm really honest, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when going through treatment, I've always fluctuated, I think, with my size. IVF definitely hindered that. During IVF, I think I tried really hard to just kind of accept how much my body was going through. And I would try and stay active. I went through a phase where I was running all the time. I started rebound lessons. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, I was very fortunate and I 
got pregnant and my body changed massively. And I think the ironic thing for me was, was that despite the fact that my body was changing so much and, you know, literally every aspect of my body changed, it was the best I'd ever felt. I had never, ever, ever felt so confident with the way that I looked as I did while I was pregnant. Whereas Mm. now... I'm kind of dealing with the aftermath of years of treatment and a pregnancy. Mm. My entire body has changed. It's not going back to normal. It's five months postpartum. There are stripes in places there have never been stripes before. <laughs> yeah. My stomach feels like jelly. It's it's all very different. And I think it's certainly an adjustment. But I'm really trying not to get too hung up on it. Good. And your body's done an amazing thing, but it changes. Oh, I totally get that. So last little bit, really, what are your plans moving forward? What does the future hold for you and your lovely family? Hopefully sleep is in the near future, but we'll see on that one. I'm eager to continue with the campaign. Recently, CCGs have changed to either integrated care systems or care boards or whatever you want to call them. And I am under the impression now that there is nowhere in the UK that actually doesn't offer any NHS funded IVF whatsoever. So that's a positive. But unfortunately, the eligibility criteria is still all over the place. It's still a postcode lottery in terms of how much you get and what you get. I would like to continue with that. I think, you know, there are certain things that I've been working on that I would like to try and push forward. But at the moment, I think I'm just trying to find my feet more than anything. You know, my space online has obviously changed dramatically in the last kind of 12 months. And I'm very conscious of that. I'm getting back into my blogging. The podcast has restarted. I'm getting back on YouTube. I'm everywhere and it's a problem. Your blog is awesome. I do listen to your podcast. It is fabulous. And you've got some amazing things on YouTube. We will put links to all of those things in the show notes and people can come and find you and and follow you and find out more about your amazing story and the work that you're doing around IVF because it is incredibly important. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I do know that you've got a huge amount on. You're only five months postpartum and I really, really appreciate you chatting with us. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Roisin, I mean, what an amazing woman. I did know that the first time I spoke to her, but the more you learn about her, the more you just think, wow. The thing in particular that really stands out, apart from her own particularly challenging fertility journey, is the IVF campaigning she did. I think maybe a lot of people don't realise how massively important her campaign was to reinstate IVF treatment for couples and women is absolutely massive and life-changing. It's a really, really, really incredible achievement. You need those people that spot the injustice and go after it. I'm amazed that the NICE guidelines have people that are entitled to three rounds of IVF, but yet certain boroughs either reduced it to one or removed it completely. Like, who made that decision? Mm -hmm. Who is responsible for that particular piece of cost saving and how brutal that is for people that live in the area of Cambridge where Amber lived. But it also reminded me of one of my favourite quotes, be the change you want to see in the world. Amber was the change. She identified it and she went after it while going through IVF herself. Remarkable, remarkable girl. She was doing this whilst dealing with her own fertility, whilst dealing with her own mental health and everything else that comes with all of that. So really, really, really an incredible thing. And she will have changed people's lives by doing that because there will be other people now that will be able to have that IVF treatment and hopefully have their family. So absolutely massive. The other thing with that, which again, a lot of people don't realise is what's actually defined as a round of IVF varies from where you live. So for some people, one round of IVF might just be egg collection. For other places, it might be egg collection and storage or egg collection and transfer. So even what one round means varies from place to place as well. 
So there is a massive lack of consistency across different areas. Um, so well done, Amber, for fighting the good fight. Very yeah, impressive. Absolutely. So, Maria, what will we be talking about next week? Next week, we will, of course, be having our two shows. On Tuesday, we will be focusing on another really important hormone, the hormone of cortisol and how that affects your fertility. And then on Friday, we will be discussing IVF extras, which are the things that you can add into your IVF treatment in the hope that they will make a really big, significant difference to that particular cycle. So tune in next week for both shows. It's going to be a good week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week and please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and they may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a worth a listen production.